Hello! Today we'll be talking about neonatal abstinence syndrome. I'm very excited to be speaking with Dr. Jadine Wong, Clinical Associate Professor of Pediatrics at Stanford University School of Medicine and neonatal hospitalist at Lucille Packard Children's Hospital. She was also a member of the California Mother and Baby Substance Exposure Task Force. Thank you, Dr. Wong, for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. So let's get started by defining neonatal abstinence syndrome. What exactly is it? So neonatal abstinence syndrome is basically a withdrawal syndrome of newborns shortly after birth when their mothers have been using substances during pregnancy. And this can really be withdrawal to any substance, but research has shown that primarily the substances are opioids or possibly multiple substances. Mm. Um, In fact, the federal agencies in the American Academy of Pediatrics are now using the terminology NOWS, which is neonatal opioid withdrawal syndrome, more commonly. So you may hear neonatal abstinence syndrome or NAS or NOWS used interchangeably. Mm. So how prevalent is neonatal abstinence syndrome or NOWS in the U.S.? So that's a good question. As I'm sure you know, opioid use disorder is really increasing in all genders and all age groups to the point of being an opioid crisis. And so pregnant women are part of that, and their babies also are having increased prevalence. In 2000, for NOWS, there were 1.2 per 1,000 hospital births. And now it's increased to over sevenfold. Um, in 2016, the number was 8.8 per 1,000 hospital births. We do find that there's an increased prevalence in rural areas in patients who are on Medicaid insurance, and also in the American Indian and Alaskan Native population. So you mentioned earlier some substances that could cause neonatal abstinence syndrome. Are there some substances that pose a higher risk than others? Like, for example, are certain opioids more likely to cause it than others, like are buprenorphine or methadone, are they safer than opioids like heroin? So that's a very good question. As you mentioned, uh, substances like morphine or fentanyl or hydrocodone, oxycodone, those are more short-acting opioids, and they can definitely cause neonatal abstinence syndrome. When you talk about methadone or buprenorphine, those are longer-acting Opioids, and they're often used for treatment when uh, mothers are in pregnancy trying to decrease their addiction. Uh, It's also more of a maintenance therapy. And so those can also cause neonatal abstinence syndrome, but are more controlled. So if a mother is, or a woman or mother is taking a shorter acting substance, then they can be more at risk because the doses can vary and it's not in a controlled setting. When you talk about drugs like heroin or fentanyl that's obtained off the street, there's an even higher risk because those are not only short-acting, but what you're getting may vary in terms of the strength and the effect that it can have. And so there's definitely more of a risk of neonatal abstinence syndrome if you're really unsure of the amount of opioid that the baby is going to be exposed to. Thank you. So what are some of the factors that increase the risk that an infant will experience withdrawal symptoms after birth? So I think that 
as we talked about, if the mother is taking a higher dose of an intermediate, faster intermediate release opioid, then that potentially could cause more withdrawal in the babies. But we have seen that that's not always true. It depends upon the metabolism of each of each baby. It also doesn't seem to be true for the maintenance opioids. So we talked about buprenorphine or methadone. It doesn't seem that the dose is necessarily related to the risk that the baby will have for withdrawal. It is important to note that a lot of people are on multiple drugs, taking multiple drugs that would cause withdrawal, and that could increase the risk of withdrawal overall. Hmm. What are the symptoms of neonatal abstinence, and how long after birth do these symptoms usually begin? So we find the opioid receptors in the brain and in the gastrointestinal tract, and this is where we see most of the symptoms that the babies have. So common symptoms that we find in babies that are withdrawing from opioids are a very high-pitched cry. They can have tremors. They can have increased muscle tone, almost to the point where it almost looks like they may be having a seizure. They may have a lot of frequent sneezing. And then with regard to the gastrointestinal tract symptoms, they may have problems feeding, diarrhea, and also that could lead to a bad diaper rash. In terms of how long after birth you see these symptoms, it really depends upon the half-life of the opioid or how quickly the substance is metabolized. So for example, with something like heroin, you might see a withdrawal within 24 hours. For methadone, it may take closer to three days. And with methadone and buprenorphine both, some babies don't show withdrawal until as much as five to seven days after birth. Yeah. So if a baby has gone a week without symptoms, is it safe to assume that they don't have neonatal absence syndrome? In general, if a week has gone by and the baby doesn't have any of the symptoms that you're concerned about, then you could pretty much assume that they won't have an increased severity at that point of withdrawal symptoms. But um, as we can talk about later, there's still a lot of research being done on long-term effects that we might not see in the immediate period, but may show up later as the child gets older. Thanks. So how is neonatal abstinence syndrome diagnosed? Are there like blood or urine tests, or is it just by symptoms? Well, there's several different ways that you look at diagnosing. Um, First of all, you want to try to confirm if the mother has used any substances. Um, And ideally, you want to do that during pregnancy. During pregnancy, the obstetrician or the mother's doctor can talk about doing a verbal screening test where you're not actually doing a test, but it's more of a questionnaire to see if there are any risk factors that would cause substance use or indicate substance use. And then sometimes if there are indications, then the women who are pregnant are tested during their pregnancy and ideally treated then. So if you know that there is a history of maternal substance use, then that is definitely a risk that the baby could have neonatal abstinence syndrome. If that's the case, and if you haven't confirmed a specific substance, then you can test the newborn. There are different ways to test. Probably the most common are urine or meconium, which is the baby's first stools. 
and then sometimes the umbilical cord. So with the urine tests, that will indicate if there's been any substance use within the prior day or two. It's only really goes back to the immediate time period. And it needs to be obtained pretty soon after birth because, as you can imagine, the more the baby urinates, um, the less concentration of substance will be there. A better confirmation of substance use during pregnancy would be to check the meconium. And that's a fancy name for when the baby has a stool. It's very black and tarry, and it usually lasts only about a day or two. Um, And that really will go back and indicate as early as maybe 20 weeks into the pregnancy if the mother's been using any substances. So meconium is what we consider to be a gold standard in terms of being more reliable as an indicator of if the baby had any exposure during mother's pregnancy. More recently, a lot of hospitals are using the umbilical cord sample as a way to test for exposure. And similar to meconium, you can identify substances in the umbilical cord that will go back farther into pregnancy, not just the prior few days. Some hospitals are finding that it's easier to send the umbilical cord right after the baby is born, rather than trying to collect the first stools. So sometimes newborns don't need to be tested if the mother's in a stable program and you know that she's being monitored and that she's being tested. But if not, then you would want to try to do testing on the baby to confirm. And just because the baby has been exposed to substances doesn't necessarily mean that it would lead to neonatal abstinence syndrome. One thing you want to do is if the baby's having symptoms, exclude any other medical causes that could be causing these symptoms. And if you're not sure, then there's different ways that you can score the baby to try to determine if these symptoms are enough to be considered neonatal abstinence syndrome. Mm. One of the traditional scoring systems is called the Finnegan. This is from the early 70s. There are different modifications of the Finnegan as well. And this is a scoring system where the nurses in the hospital will look at a whole list of different kinds of symptoms similar to the ones I mentioned earlier. And then based on how often these symptoms are happening or how severe they are, the nurses will put a score on it. Hmm. It's not really straightforward. In fact, often in the hospital, we'll we'll look at the symptoms and we can't intuitively come up with the score. It's really determined by the computer and the severity, and that gets added up to a final score, which we then use to decide if the baby is having enough withdrawal to be considered NAS or not. Hmm. Because this score is not intuitive and harder to interpret, A lot of hospitals are going toward what we call a functional scoring system. And quite simply, it's based on the baby's functions. It was first developed by doctors in in Yale, and they called it ESC or Eat, Sleep, Console. Hmm. It basically looks at three different functions of the baby that are very intuitive. One is, can the baby eat at least an ounce in a feeding? Can the baby sleep for at least an hour at a time before he or she wakes up again? And can the baby be consoled easily? Mm. Now, this is a newer 
system of scoring. So not all hospitals have adapted it yet, and there's still more study that they're doing in terms of the long-term effects from babies that are scored this way. But in general, with either scoring system, if they reach a certain threshold, then those babies are considered to have neonatal abstinence syndrome. Thank you. So what treatment options are available to infants going through withdrawal? There's two basic types of treatment options that we look at. One is non-pharmacologic and the other is pharmacologic. So with non-pharmacologic, there's really no medications involved. It's very, again, very intuitive and meant to support the baby. One of the most important non-pharmacologic treatments is what we call rooming in. Hmm. And this really supports the mother-infant dyad. We really like to look at the mother and the infant as a pair together because really they support each other. And when the mother's there, we find that there is significant bonding that can happen and a lot more support and the babies are consoled a lot more easily. So we really try to focus on rooming in, keeping the mother and the baby in the same room rather than separating the baby by taking the baby to one of the special nurseries. We also try to decrease stimulation because, as you can imagine, if babies are having withdrawal symptoms, they're easily startled, easily irritated. And so decreasing stimulation helps keep them calm. Part of that is decreasing the noise, so not speaking loudly in the room, not having a lot of other loud noises around lowering the light level, and also decreasing handling. So for example, nurses will try to combine everything all at once. Maybe if they have to change the diaper, they'll check the vital signs at that time so that they're not always going in and handling the babies a lot. As I said before, it's really important to support what we call this mother-infant dyad. And a lot of that is educating the mother in terms of how to take care of the babies. A lot of times they're not comfortable with taking care of a baby that's really fussy or is having withdrawal symptoms. And so really teaching the mother how she can support the baby, how she can swaddle the baby, hold the baby, soothe the baby. Breastfeeding is also a very common way of soothing the baby as well. And if mothers are on a stable treatment plan, so for example, on methadone or buprenorphine, then the mother is able to breastfeed, and that is really helpful to support the dyad. Now, if supportive care, if this non-pharmacologic care doesn't work to decrease the baby's symptoms, then you can consider pharmacologic treatment. And the most common treatment is morphine. Sometimes we just give a small dose of morphine just as a trial dose once or twice if the symptoms are really severe, and we wait and see if that helps soothe the baby. If it does, then sometimes one or two doses or an occasional dose is all that's necessary. If it seems like it helps, but then the baby starts to have symptoms again more quickly, then we can also consider putting the baby on a regularly scheduled dose of morphine, for example, Every three or four hours, we try to time it with when the baby wakes up to eat, again, trying to decrease handling and moving the baby around if we don't have to. 
Some hospitals will use methadone and even buprenorphine to try to give pharmacologic treatment for the babies. There's still some research that needs to be done, but some hospitals report that it seems to work better for babies than morphine. And then there are also additional medications that you could add on to morphine or methadone, um, and such as clonidine. That gets a little bit more involved. And often at that point, the babies, if they're on medication, need to be transferred to a different nursery, a special nursery where they can be monitored more closely. It doesn't mean that the mother can't still be really involved and visit. And if the hospital has the facilities, even stay in the same room with the baby. Yeah, thanks for reviewing that. Because I know we often use medications to treat symptoms of opioid withdrawal or to treat opiate addiction in adults, but I wasn't sure if they worked or they were safe to use in infants. So yeah, thank you for giving an overview of that. So stepping back a little bit, how long are withdrawal symptoms expected to last? So it's really different for every baby. When you think about how your metabolism might be different from someone else's, the same thing with the babies. Even though we have a general idea of how long it takes for them to metabolize, medications and substances, it's really different for every individual newborn. Um, so the most important thing is to really be consistent in doing the scoring and the care. And often that can lead to the babies not having to stay in the hospital as long because they don't have symptoms for that long. But it could be as little as just a few days or we have babies who need morphine for a longer period of time, and they may be in the hospital for even a month or two. Once we stop the medication, if we are giving medication, we do like to watch the babies for at least a day or maybe even two or three days to make sure that they don't have a relapse and start to show more symptoms for which we may start medication or may just watch them in the hospital with more supportive care. So you alluded to this earlier. Are there long-term health consequences resulting from prenatal exposure to opioids or other substances? That's a very good question. And uh, if you have that answer, then you would be really helping out a lot of the researchers. Um, there's a lot of ongoing research in this area. Uh, and there's a lot of confounding factors because with this population, not only do they have withdrawal to substances, but there may be other risks because they're often in disadvantaged families um, and they they're often have other healthcare needs or other environmental needs. And so with these confounding factors, it's hard to separate out if the long-term effects are due to substance exposure or the long-term effects due to the socioeconomic circumstances, the home environment, or any other environmental factors that could come into play. Often with this population, they're lost to follow-up because they may have a transient home situation or they may not come to all their research appointments or all their medical care. And so we may not be able to follow them several years out if they're no longer in contact with any medical providers. Some studies in the past have shown that there are long-term problems with vision, with motor development, or with behavior and cognition. Uh, 
And it's not universal, but these are definitely areas where the pediatrician would want to follow these babies when they're children and make sure that these aren't problems that will show up later. Yeah. Is there anything that can be done to prevent neonatal absence syndrome before and during a woman's pregnancy? So absolutely. I find, I think that pregnancy is really the time that is the ideal opportunity to be able to identify which women may be at risk for substance use and be able to start them on treatment and then do a lot of education during the pregnancy on what to expect for when the baby is born. Often when these mothers are not treated, it can lead to overdose or death. It can lead to fetal loss or even prematurity. So to be able to start that mother-infant dyad care before the baby's born by educating the mothers will really help and get them on a stable treatment plan and also in touch with public resource agencies that can help support them throughout pregnancy and after the baby's born. Yeah, Thanks, because I spoke to Dr. Turplin, who is an OBGYN and addiction specialist on an earlier interview, and he kind of said that pregnancy does provide a good opportunity to identify women with substance use disorders and how it's important to like screen patients during prenatal visits, visits in like a non-judgmental way. So yeah, it, it's that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. I think that pregnancy is really a good opportunity to be able to reach out to these women who are pregnant, who are also have substance use, because they really want to do what's best for the baby. And so even if they weren't able to control their addiction before they were pregnant, they now recognize that they have a baby that will be born soon that they'll need to raise, and they don't want their problems to then be reflected on the baby. And so it's a good opportunity to get them into a treatment program and educate them and help them with the addiction. And that will also help the baby have fewer symptoms and also have a supportive environment. Yeah. Kind of building off on that, what are some of the barriers pregnant women who use substances face in seeking care that could prevent neonatal absence syndrome? And do you have any ideas on how to improve this? I think one of the most important things is to be non-judgmental when approaching pregnant women or if their mothers have already had their babies. But during pregnancy, there's a lot of stigma and bias that can happen. Some of this is institutional bias. There's a lot of racism, socioeconomic disadvantages. And I think that it's really important to recognize that we need to treat all pregnant women equally and provide them with the same care and the same opportunities. And if they are disadvantaged, that they may have less access to treatment. And so they may need extra support in terms of different agencies to put them in touch with to help them get through their addiction and start treatment. Um, we know that, that non-white women are less likely to enter complete treatment programs. Um, they definitely have less access to medication, and they may have lower compliance with treatment. We also know that after delivery, they have a higher risk of overdose and, and death. So getting them involved in a stable treatment program during pregnancy is the best way 
to care for both the mother and the baby after. Um, and this could be not just medical care, but social services, mental health care, public health nursing, food and housing programs. And then once the baby is born, a pediatrician should closely follow the baby. There's lactation specialists who can help with breastfeeding. There's the WIC, Women, Infant, and Children Nutrition Program that will help provide food and uh, provide formula if needed for the mother and the baby. And then there's early intervention programs, and these will follow the infant development, such as early Head Start, to help identify some of those maybe longer-term problems that we talked about that may show up later and not in the immediate period after the baby's born. You may have heard about the child welfare system. In California, it's called CPS. And they really try to maintain the mother-infant dyad. Some women will see them as perhaps punitive or you know, calling the police or being reported. But really, their goal is to make sure that it's a safe home environment for both the mother and the infant. So it's important to recognize that we want to get the dyad involved with all these programs to really provide support in, in all areas. I think there's a lot of funding issues too. And so funding is often needed for these programs as a support. Yeah. Thank you. And finally, was there anything else you wanted to add? Well, I think we've discussed already, but it's really important to, to have an open mind when working with mothers, pregnant women, mothers, and newborns, and really recognizing that they're a dyad together and preserving that and supporting that is really the best thing for both mother and infant. And as an additional comment, we've talked about pregnant women and mothers, that's how I've referred to it, but there are some uh, institutions that are also stressed that really we're recognizing a birthing parent and so really trying to avoid that stigma and bias and being open-minded to a lot of different family arrangements and preferences as well. I just want to thank you again, Dr. Wong, for this wonderful summary of neonatal absence syndrome. And I hope we can have you back in the future. I'm happy to speak with you again. Thank you. Thank you. 